Well, it is Advent season, and we celebrate what Jesus has accomplished, his coming into the world, which in and of itself was a miraculous feat. But we do that by emphasizing Advent through readings, through the lighting of candles, and today we are emphasizing peace. Um, I, I was in a zoo one time, and I noticed a an incredible attraction that they had. And uh, in this attraction, they, uh, there was a lion there in a the lion cage. Well, that's not so much of an attraction, but there was a lamb also there in the same cage. And uh, I was amazed at that. People were gathering to look at these guys peaceably uh, there together in the same cage. And I asked the zookeeper, I said, do, do they always get along? Do, do, do they ever fight? And, and he said, rarely. And I said, well, what happens if they do? He says, we get another sheep. That really didn't happen. Um, but what if it did? And the scriptures re- talk about that that will someday be a reality. Turn in God's word, find in the Bible Micah. I'm going to give you 30 minutes to find it, and I'll come back in just a while. Micah chapter 5, verses 2 through 6. Um, it's the sixth, Mike uh, is, Mike is the sixth of 12 minor prophets in the Old Testament. Remember, they're called minor not because they're less important, but because they're short. I, I think Micah measures in about 5-1. You're a tough crowd today. You're really a tough crowd. I, no, he's not short, but the book is short. It's uh, only a few pages, like all of the minor prophets are, again, significant prophets, but just shorter in volume. It takes a lot less time to read Micah than it does Ezekiel. I guarantee you, I've just gone through these prophets, and so uh, it's, it's really tough stuff. So uh, Micah is one of the great 7th century prophets. He's a, a contemporary, that is, he prophesied at the same time as uh, Isaiah, uh, as another minor prophet, Hosea. And you'll see upon this map, by this time, the kingdom had split. The northern kingdom, consisting of ten of the twelve tribes, they split shortly after Solomon's uh, death and when his son came to reign. And uh, he, he, by virtue of the fact that he just did not know how to lead, just split the kingdom in a day. Um, and so we had the ten to... Uh, Ten tribes of northern Israel, uh, the northern kingdom called Israel, sometimes referred to as Samaria because that was the capital city. And then the southern kingdom made up, made up of the two remaining tribes, Judah, which was by far the largest, most influential tribe, and Benjamin, they were the kingdom of the south. So you had the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. And throughout the book of 1st, 2nd Kings, also 1st and 2nd Chronicles, you read of all these kings, of these two separate kingdoms. Sometimes they'd get along, sometimes they'd war with each other. And Israel, the northern kingdom, had turned its back on Yahweh. They were worshiping false gods like Baal and Molech. Molech was a particularly detestable god because the worshipers would sacrifice their children, sacrifice little babies, 
by heating the idol up into real flames, hot flames, and, and sacrifice their child. A defenseless little baby torturously put to death for the false notion of what they thought was right versus what was wrong. They thought this was a real God and that they would be blessed by doing this, that it was okay. And I just must say, anytime the subject of Molech comes up and the sacrifice of children, I just have to compare it to uh, abortion being legal in our nation. Um, the thought of sacrificing a baby to a false God, but America, I mean, think about it, sacrifices million babies a year or more on the false notion that it's a woman's right to choose to control her own body, that it extends somehow to killing her baby. So I just say that. That's for free. So that, you know, what's going on then in the northern kingdom in the time of Micah is situation like this, worshiping Baal, worshiping Moloch. In the southern kingdom, it wasn't much better. In the southern kingdom, uh, they were smug, self-righteous a bit, because they were believed that they were protected because of Jerusalem being in the, uh, their holy city. Uh, and, and inside Jerusalem was Solomon's temple, the dwelling place of God. But those who had money and influence were not taking care of those who did not. And you read this all throughout the prophets. This was a common thread. You, you, you who are affluent, you who are rich, fail to see the need and do anything about those who are poor. The widows, the orphans among you, those who were weak and powerless. And those who had power just pushed themselves further to the head of the line and neglected or ignored those who were weak. And God laid on Micah's heart to call these people to repentance. And he said, turn from your sinful ways. Turn to Yahweh and worship Him only. Treat those less fortunate than yourselves with compassion, with generosity. But they would not listen. They would not repent. And Micah warns them these, with these famous words, God will not be mocked. God will not be mocked. And as a matter of fact, in just a few years, God would raise up Assyria and sweep down in 721 B.C. and sack Samaria, that is the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel, slaughtering many, taking away many more back to Assyria in slavery, in bondage. And then 140 years later, Nebuchadnezzar would be empowered by God, and the Babylonians would sweep down, sack Jerusalem, tear down the temple, and cart off thousands upon thousands of the residents of Jerusalem to Babylon. Well, I know this is Christmas, and that you came this morning to get your spirits lifted and to hear nice songs and to experience warm fuzzies. 
You came to the wrong place. No, I'm just kidding. Actually, Micah has a prophecy for us that we'll examine in just a moment that will warm our hearts and give us hope for the future um, and prayerfully, prayerfully, an anxiety-free peace in life. But make no mistake, there is no room in the human heart for the peace of God and for the sins of fallen mankind that we all experience. If I hold on to my fleshly desires and thoughts and actions, they diminish, even extinguish the peace of God in my heart. So this morning, I can't get to the promise of peace until I've given ample focus into what gets in the way of peace. And that is our stubborn refusal to, to give up the, I don't know, stuff in our lives that is not consistent with the character and the person of Jesus Christ. So the first four chapters focus on Samaria and Jerusalem. But when Micah gets to chapter 5, he focuses not on Samaria, not on Jerusalem, but on the little town of Bethlehem. So let us read in Micah, Micah chapter 5, beginning in verse 2. Verse 2 reads, Bethlehem, Ephrata, you are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin, that is Jesus' origin, his origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. Now Bethlehem, we know, uh, is about eight miles south of Jerusalem. Uh, it means house of bread. It was the home of such well-known people like Rachel, even, even more well-known, David. That term, Ephrata, means fruitful. Bethlehem, the fruitful. Referring to the fertile soil in that region, but out of Bethlehem will come the greatest fruit of all. Talks about the clans of Judah in verse 2. Repeatedly, repeatedly, the Old Testament points to the Messiah coming from Judah, from the tribe of Judah. Let's go to verse 3. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of the ruler's brothers will return to the people of Israel. And here Micah is speaking about the exile of God's people and then their return from exile. And it came in three stages. In 538 B.C., under Zerubbabel, was the first set of uh, Israelites to return to their homeland. Ezra. Ezra, yeah. yeah. The biblical Ezra, okay. Ezra in 458 B.C. 
And then under Nehemiah in 444 B.C. So they came in waves, and the stage was set for the first advent. I mean, all of this is really to be looking forward to the advent of Jesus Christ. And Micah has that in view here. That's why he mentions it. You know, I, I'm talking about something that's going to happen really quick because of your sins. You're going to be taken into exile, but you're going to return. And in there, he mixes it up with that of Christ. Well, since 1948, with the emergence of the modern country of Israel, Jews have been returning by the score to their country. And this signals that we are in the last days and the Messiah's return is imminent. That is, his, his coming again. And then, and, and then the second coming of Christ eventually will, will be very soon. And he's, the Messiah is going to usher in a kingdom like we've never seen on this planet. Total reign and rule of the world. Now, he doesn't have it yet. It doesn't mean God is not in charge. God is very much in charge. But the devil is still very active and is allowed to do much, much of what he wants to do. And so we move to verses 4 and 6 now. Let's read these verses. He will stand and shepherd them in the strength of the Lord, in the majestic name of the Lord his God. They will live securely, for then his greatness will extend to the ends of the earth. Verse 5, he will be their peace. When Assyria invades our land, when it marches against our fortresses, we will raise against it seven shepherds, even eight leaders of men, and they will shepherd the land of Israel with the sword. The land of Nimrod, which means... Babylon, with a drawn blaze. I mean, Micah's telling them who's going to be coming. So he will rescue us from Assyria when it invades our land, when it marches against our territory. I, I know this can be confusing. I know it can be problematic in our thinking. The Bible is rarely ever linear in its prophecies. And most Usual is that it's circular. So the prophecies tend to go like this instead of linear. But it strikes the perfect balance. Micah speaks of the invasion of Assyria and Babylon. Now keep in mind, these people are as far away from, you know, in their own minds, in their own thinking, are far away from an invasion. They're not thinking, you know, they're getting up, going to work, and invasion. Oh, come on. you, you got to be crazy. Most of these prophets did not have uh, an audience. People just scoffed at them and just rejected their message. So you got to understand their mindset. But it's looming, the invasion. But Micah also tells them the truth, that someday you will come back home. But there is also in Micah's prophecy the soon appearing of the Messiah and the scattering of God's people in Acts chapter 8 that we've studied previously. And then the eventual coming of the second 
of uh, uh, second coming of the Messiah. This, it's all wrapped up right here in these few verses. So, Pastor Ted, how does this, how does this relate to me and to my Christmas or to my Advent? And that's a good question. I'm glad you asked it. Um, when you put all of this together, you see that God's promise of peace was to be experienced in times of great trouble and adversity. And that's who Micah is preaching to. You're coming to a time, Israel, you're coming to a time, Judah, of tremendous, intense adversity. But I want you to know the peace, the peace of God. When you put all of that together, the promise is of peace in the midst of great suffering. So, let's spend the remainder of our time this morning. How does God, answering this question, how does God give us peace in the midst of adversity? And I want to share three ways. He shares peace. He gives us peace in the midst of adversity by first reminding us of his divine nature. He reminds us of who he is. Verse 2, one will come to you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is of antiquity, from ancient times. The Messiah that we will be born in Bethlehem is not going to be new to the universe. We sometimes think, you know, uh, that, that, that he, Jesus hasn't been around for very long. But he existed before this was written. He is sometimes called the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And this speaks directly of his incarnation. God in flesh. God in human form. So the question is, is asked, when did Jesus begin? Well, well, it's obvious, Pastor, Jesus came 2,000 years ago. Wrong. That's not the correct answer, if that was your answer, but I don't believe that was anybody's answer. Jesus has always been with us, was always here. He has no beginning, he has no end. And I can't fully cover all the attributes of Jesus' nature. They are many, but I want to look at four. So we're still in that first point that Jesus, that, that God reminds us of who he is, some of his attributes. And one of the things I see here is that he's eternal. Number one, he's eternal. Jesus has been around literally forever. Nothing's new to him. Nothing is outside of his experience. And get this, a relationship with Jesus is an eternal thing. Our relationship with Jesus is eternal. He's promised never to leave us or forsake us. He's not a fair-weathered friend. We are. We may leave him for a while. We may forsake him for a while. We're a bit of a fair-weathered friend when it comes to our relationship with Christ. So when we need someone that we can depend on, we can depend upon Christ. He's always there for us, to give us peace. He's it. Another attribute is he's omniscient. I love that song we sang a while ago, talking about the mercies 
of God. And it mentioned in the very first verse, he's omniscient, all-knowing. There's not a situation in all the universe that he doesn't know about. There's not a problem that he cannot solve. No matter how complicated or unsolvable your problem seems, the divine, omniscient Jesus is all over it. The incarnate God can diagnose and even lead us into a solution. Third, he is sovereign. He is sovereign. Nothing happens outside of his knowledge and control. Nothing. It is amazing to me that when we get thrust into some adversity or some difficulty, a spouse walks out, a loved one's in a car wreck, someone loses their job. They act as if God is somehow surprised by this event, that it snuck up on him, and that he was powerless to stop it in our lives. Now this might blow your mind, but God often allows and sometimes even orchestrates the circumstances in your life. You can take that and conclude that, well, God is just awful. Or, or God's just uh, impotent and is incapable of getting me out of this trouble. Or you can take that truth that God sometimes orchestrates or that sometimes he allows things to happen. You can take that truth and conclude that God knows more than any of us do about our present circumstances. He has, he has a higher purpose for us that we don't know anything about. He has a plan to help us and, and to get us out of whatever situation or to keep us in, but to walk with us. He has provision for us and provides for you and me and really, by the hand, walks us through the valley. And he brings us peace and adversity just by knowing his divine attributes. In fact, let me just take a moment and announce that uh, in January, we'll have a 12-week-long grow group. And all adult grow groups are going to be going through the manual called Experiencing God, Knowing and Doing the Will of God. I'm really excited about this. Everybody will be going through the same thing, and you don't want to be left out. And we'll let you know this week how to sign up for it, but it's, it's going to, to call us to learn about the attributes of God and how God works in our world today, how he speaks and how he moves and how he acts. So if you want to know more about how to know his will and then how to do his will, we're going to have a grow group for you. We're going to be going through experiencing God, and I can't wait. More about that to come. But it has to do with his attributes. He's sovereign. He's omniscient. He's all uh, of these things. Um, and we're asking the question, how does God bring peace into our adversity? And the first way is he reveals his attributes. And so the last attribute that I want to mention before moving on is that he's merciful. He's merciful. We sang about that a while ago. He loves me. He has a preferred future for me uh, that is far better uh, than all the pain I presently suffer. So I choose to believe that God's adversity or that God allows adversity 
in my life to His glory for my good. And if you can accept that truth, you're a long ways toward surviving, toward toward, uh, uh, being able to find peace, His peace, in the middle of adversity. His origin is from antiquity. He is from ancient times. As we begin to understand more and more of God's divine nature, the more we can experience that internal rest and peace. All right, secondly this morning, not only are we to focus upon his divine attributes, but this is another way that God shares adversity, that he shares his peace in the midst of adversity. Number two, he reminds us that our adversity is not forever. It is not eternal. You see that in verse 3 this morning. He reminds us that our adversity is not eternal. Now, Micah is speaking of the invasions and exile and an incredible adversity. And we live in an incredibly broken world, don't we? Nature is broken. People are broken. And adversity is from one of two sources of brokenness. Now, either, either adversity comes from the bad decisions we make, poor individual choices, and the Israelites had made plenty of them. They'd chosen their own pleasure rather than pleasing God. And it got them into trouble. And we, when we decide to depart from God's will and choose our will, when we decide to, to, to move away not only from His will, but from His ways, uh, from, his, uh, from His plan for our life, we experience pain. Maybe not today, but it is coming. Pain and suffering because of our own poor choices. But also, also we experience pain from the choice of others. You can look back all the way to the beginning of time in Adam and Eve. They royally messed up in the Garden of Eden. And because of it, today we experience all forms of sickness, all forms of sin. The poor choice of a drunken driver runs a red light and and heaps tons of grief upon a family. Someone experiments with drugs for the first time. Before you know it, they're addicted. And rips apart families. But you know what? No matter what adversity we face, whatever cause, whatever's caused by personal choice or the choice of others, it doesn't last forever. It doesn't last forever. Psalm 30, verse 5 says, Weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. What the psalmist is saying is that no circumstance is forever. That eventually the pain and suffering will give way to something far better. Marriages can be restored. Health can be restored. Jobs can be restored. Sorrow and grief can be alleviated. And ultimately, what isn't restored in our lifetime will be restored when Jesus comes again. In the adversity, in my own life, I, as a Christ follower, I've experienced adversity just like you have. But I have found this fundamental fact 
this to be true. That when we accept that all suffering has a shelf life. A shelf life. It brings us peace. When I stop to think that whatever I'm going through is only for a time, only for a season, that it has a shelf life. I can enjoy God's peace. So how does God deliver his peace in the middle of adversity? He reminds us of his divine attributes. He reminds us that it doesn't last forever. And then lastly, Jesus reminds us that he is our peace. That he's our peace. Look at the four through six. I'm not going to read those. Uh, we don't have time to dig into all the weeds here in the verses, but look where it says in verse five. He will be their peace. When Assyria invades our land. Verse 6 says, so he will rescue us from Assyria. Assyria is coming. Assyria is invading. Yet Micah says that the Messiah will rescue us. That the Messiah will bring peace. Well, what's going on here? The scripture is pointing to the fact that peace, deep down an unshakable peace, does not come from a lack of adversity. Your peace and my peace doesn't come, like, like, no adversity. I can still be chaotic in my mind and soul. I can still be burdened in my heart. It doesn't matter. But if, when adversity comes, it doesn't matter whether you have it or whether there's a lack of adversity. As a matter of fact, the deepest peace I've ever felt has been in the midst of some great adversity. That's true. Haven't you felt that? Haven't you been in the midst of some kind of adversity? It may just be private and personal, and then God speaks to you. Or He reveals Himself as you're reading His Word, maybe going through your devotional. Or you hear a song or a message Something that just speaks to you personally. And God's peace overwhelms you. In some of our greatest adversities, we experience more than ever peace. The adversity comes, it creates fear or anxiety or, or sorrow in us. And we start crying out for relief. We want the pain to stop. We want the reason for the pain to go away, but this response doesn't bring peace. Wishing it away doesn't bring peace. The more I focus on that, the less peace I experience. Have you ever found that the more you focus on your adversity, the more serious it becomes in your life? Then I start thinking about who God is, that He's eternal, that he's omniscient, he's sovereign, he's merciful, and, and that peace begins to replace all of my pain and sorrow. I remember that no circumstance is forever. That God is an amazing, restorative God. That my weeping will last a day, but in the morning, joy will come. And peace begins to flood my soul. I focus on my relationship with Jesus. 
that He's the source of all of my real and lasting and victorious peace. And I find rest and peace deep in my heart despite the chaos of my circumstances and adversity. And you can too. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we call for your peace. We call on you, O God. In the midst of our adversities, in the midst of our problems, in the midst of all of our trials, we call upon your peace. We recognize that Jesus is our peace. But Lord, if a person only knows about Christ and doesn't really know Him as their Lord and Savior, they can't enjoy that peace. They only know about it. And I pray today, Father, if that individual is here in our sanctuary this morning or, or watching via Facebook, that they will give their heart and life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Welcome the Messiah into their heart to take over, to take control. For we recognize, Father, that we have made a mess of our lives apart from Christ, that we've made so many bad choices. And if that unsaved individual would just cry out to you and call upon your name, they can be saved. It's as simple as that, Father. So I pray for all who are here and heavy burdens, burdened and, and just laden with guilt, piled up sins that have gone unforgiven, that today, Father, we would confess those sins to you, that we would take our adversity, take our burdens and our problems, and lay them there at the foot of the cross. Call upon you to once again save us, give us new life, give us hope, and give us peace. In Jesus' name we pray.